Know your enemies and know your friends. A study of the book of Hebrews. As we've had a chance to follow along with the story, you've come to recognize that the book of Hebrews is highlighting enemies that are unique for Christians. Like, What are some of the temptations that we face? One of them, the first one, was the temptation to drift, to feel that because you are a Christian, everything is fine, no real danger for you, when in fact, by not focusing on what it is that the Lord wants us to focus on and not remembering that the new person inside of us is an active living thing. If we think that it is just a floating along, we could easily float down the river. The current will pull us going over the edge, the waterfall to our destruction. But it's a danger for a Christian to think that he can just float along. We also talked about how the initial audience of this letter was so tempted to not view Jesus as important as he really was that they were tempted to love angels more, that they were tempted to go back to the old ways of the Jewish worship system where they would worship in the temple and have priests and have ceremonial rules and things like this. And like for us, that might have been a little puzzling. Like I don't find myself being tempted to make animal sacrifices to assure myself that there's a Messiah coming. And like the temptations may have seemed a little unique to them. But in fact, we can be very familiar with how we ourselves are tempted to not make Jesus important in our lives. For the Jewish audience of this letter, when we got to the end of chapter 10, we found out what was going on. Like, why were they tempted to not love Jesus as much and to go back to the old ways, as it were? At the heart of that was that they were being persecuted for their faith. And that in the early church, when the Apostle Paul went out and did mission trips, he would get to a city. And who was it who persecuted him? Was it the people that were like the non, uh, non-Jewish, non the Gentiles, kind of like the people who lived in the city as a whole? No, like it was the people from the Jewish synagogues where Paul would go to preach and then they would hear him preaching about Christ and there would some who would come to love, there would be some who came to love Jesus, but there would be others who were envious and jealous and they got everyone riled up against Paul and then he could get stoned or they wanted to arrest him. Or, like, the writer to the Hebrews, he's writing to people that lived in that general same time. So they were tempted to back away from Jesus and move over more fully again to the old ways of Judaism because they were being threatened for their faith. And so we looked at, like, what are the things that can make us feel comfortable giving up on Jesus that can make not being bold to confess his name attractive? And we can look at the the pressures in our society to stand up for things that are just not right. And well, like we want to do the right thing, but we also don't want to lose friends. And so all of a sudden we can find ourselves at our place of work or in a conversation with a family member, kind of qualifying what it is that we believe so as to not seem so different or just to keep our mouths shut. I'm not saying you got to kick down a door to get a confession of Jesus out there, but I think we know those times when it's so obvious this is a great time to talk about Jesus and we're afraid. We don't do it. We also can be tempted because of the possibility of persecution to love Jesus less. Well, there's a wonderful encouragement that comes today. In fact, if there is a chapter of the book of Hebrews that people know, it's probably the one we're going to be looking at, chapter 11. But before we do that, I'd like you to think about 
socializing. You know that like different people are comfortable with different degrees of social interaction. So we'll talk about extroverts and introverts and like extroverts might, they can't hang out with people. They just go crazy. And there might be introverts who, if they ever are hanging out with people are thinking, okay, like there's gotta be a way that I can like gently get myself out of this conversation or whatever it is. There are personality types that are different and it doesn't automatically have to be a problem to be an extrovert or it doesn't have to be a problem to be an introvert. But if you were to just think about people wanting to be with other people, and I think everyone like at some level enjoys the company of people, why? Like what different reasons do people have for wanting to be with other people? You might say, well, it's fun, or I like to be with other people when I'm struggling with something because I can kind of bounce off my feelings on them and they can let me know whether what I am I is what I'm thinking like clear thinking? Am I completely missing the boat on this? You might say, well, like, I don't know why I like to be with people, but I just do. I might go back to the way God created the world at the start, right? Where he said it's not good for a man to be alone. That the way God has designed us just to be with other people. One of the reasons that you might like to be with other people is that when you're feeling down, somebody else can encourage you. Today, you're going to have the chance to get a whole lot of new friends, a whole lot of believing friends from centuries, yes, millennia ago. Hebrews chapter 11 is the story of so many different people who love the Lord. And we'll see, how is it that they lived out their life? A blessing for the Hebrew Christians who were struggling with not fitting into the world around them, being persecuted, right? A blessing to us as well. So Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith. He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless on the, as the sand on the seashore. By faith, by faith, we hear about 
Abel and Enoch and Noah, right, building that ark, even though there was no cloud on the horizon for 120 years he did this. Abraham, right, trusting the Lord by faith, by faith. What if you were to write your own by faith statement? By faith, and then put your name in, what would come next? There might be a number of things going through your mind right now. If I were to ask you, like, what's hard about coming up with a statement like that? You might say, well, like, all I can think about are those times when I didn't act by faith, when I did the wrong thing. You might think, I don't know, like, it makes me feel, is this being proud to talk about something that good that happened by faith? What about on the, on the easy side? Maybe for some of you, there was something that came to mind right away because you thought about a difficult moment and... The Lord gave you confidence in him, kept every one of his promises. It's a great example for you of how trusting in the Lord is, is uh, the, the right way, right? When you think about your own experiences, when you do think about by faith, you're probably trying to think of a moment that was hard. When we think about challenging moments, and we think about faith. Faith is one lens through which we can look at the world. It's a lens through which we can look at moments that are incredibly difficult. If that's true, how would you describe the other lens? Like, what's the alternative to looking at things through the lens of trust? Well, you might say doubt. Like, that's the opposite. Looking through... Uh, the lens, like all the things that are happening in my world and doubting and being afraid. And, and absolutely, like that, that is the opposite of faith, right? What's interesting is when you, when you hear what the writer to the Hebrews says about faith, and this starts from the very first verse in chapter 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sure of what we hope for, we expect it yet in the future. We don't see it yet and we're certain of things that we do not see. If one lens to look at life is faith, another lens to look at life is sight. That we view everything, evaluate what's going on based on what we can see with our eyes, what we can feel in our bodies, those things that we can touch, the, the things in life that we can get a handle on by our eyes, our ears, right? Everything. So, what is a key difference between the lens of faith and the lens of sight? Well, a key difference is that everything that you can see and feel and hear and all of the rest, all of that is temporary. Right? I mean, everything earthly is passing away people's perspectives on us, other people for that matter, our own desires, all of those things are temporary. The big difference between faith and sight is that faith, as the Holy Spirit presents it, is always focusing on things not seen, on promises, on the future, on our heavenly home, Whereas sight is focusing on what I'm feeling right now, what I'm seeing as far as threats, 
my own calculations about whether this is going to turn out well for me in this life or not, right? When you think about looking at life through one of those two lenses, and clearly in the, in the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, we are being encouraged to think about things in terms of faith, as we're comparing these two ways of looking at the world, let's, let's look at an example, which is, in a way, this faith thing pushed to the ultimate extreme. Verse 13. First he says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Just those verses to start. Like Abraham, when he came to the land of Canaan, he went far away from his own home. He considered himself an alien and a stranger there. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, if what he was thinking was, oh, like I really want to go back home. And he was thinking when thinking of home, of were of the Chaldees, where Abraham came from, he would have had a chance to go back, but he didn't. He knew he was a stranger, but he was a stranger on this planet. He was a stranger in the universe. What he was looking forward to was his heavenly home. So, lens of faith, lens of sight, did not see his heavenly home by sight, but Wow, was he looking forward to it because he knew, he knew that that was real. Now, that extreme, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham, re Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. That was, that was like, there was 430 years between when, when the children of Abraham, children of Isaac, I should, children of Jacob, I should say, when they entered the land of Egypt until finally they left again. So Joseph was right on the front side of that. He gave his brothers his bones. He gave his family members his bones and said, you hang on to these until we leave Egypt. And it wasn't going to happen for almost 400 years, late, till 400 years later. Like crazy. He was that sure that God was going to keep his promise to get the Israelites out of Egypt. But, but that, the extreme, here's a dad on the top of a mountain, with a knife in his hand, his young boy laid out horizontal on an altar. Like, what are you thinking as a father? I'm going to kill my son? God has told me to be ready to sacrifice my son to him? How did he do it? I mean, finally, we will say, properly so, that it was a miracle that Abraham was able to do it. God is the one who creates faith. God is the one who strengthens faith. Do you know what Abraham was thinking? He was thinking that God was going to raise his son from the dead. Now, he had not seen something like that happen before. 
He was waiting when the sword, when the knife went through the chest of his son for his son to die and then God to step in and do something spectacular. It's like, wow. Now, how in the world did Abraham know that something like that was going to happen, that it would have to happen? Well, you could say that he did know he was doing the right thing by putting the knife into his son because God said he should do it. And if God says we should do it, then we need to do it. But what gave him the confidence that he, he would have his son back again? You know what it was? Abraham thought about words God had spoken to him. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac needed to have a baby. Isaac needed to be married. And Isaac needed to have a child. And Abraham knew that Isaac was not married. And that he did not have a child. And that God had to keep his promise. And so Abraham said, all right, well, God, I trust you. If you want me to kill my son, I will do it. But I know you're going to bring him back to life again because you do not break your word. If you think of a challenging situation that maybe you're facing right now in life, look at that situation through. Number one, lens of faith. Number two, lens of sight. How would that look? If you look at the situation through the lens of sight, maybe you're challenged by one of your children, maybe things at work aren't going well and you're wondering if you're going to lose your job, like you fill in the blank, health crisis, something different. To look at that through the lens of sight is to say, okay, like that would be really, really bad if I lost my job. I, I'm going to lose my life. That is really, really bad. I, I've got trouble in my family. I can only be sad about that, right? To look at things through sight would lead us to conclusions just like that. To look at th things through sight would have led Abraham to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to follow through with this. I am not going to listen to God. And that's what we do, isn't it? When we look at things through sight. In the end, we hear a promise to trust the Lord. We hear a promise that he will work everything out for our good. Trust the Lord and all will go well. We allow our eyes to drive us to doubt. What does it look like when you look at that through faith? If it's trouble at work or challenge in a family or health crisis or whatever, all you know is that to do the right thing is the right thing, as in to do whatever God tells you to do. And if he hasn't told you exactly what to do, I mean, like if you're at a restaurant and you're trying to order chocolate or vanilla and you're going, oh Lord, like what should I do? You course we realize there are things where God has made it clear that whatever choice you make it's a God-pleasing choice it's fine right so you're looking at those things that God has told you to do and if it's truly free then you're okay to do it either or any one of them and then you hang on to words that God has spoken to you you look in the Bible for promises and that's why we study our Bibles that's why we have personal devotional time with the Word of God it's why we listen to Bible studies and all of the rest you need promises of God to hang on to Abraham, he knew that his son was going to have a baby. We know that God is going to work absolutely everything out for our good. To look at challenges through the eyes of faith is to know that I'm going to be in heaven someday. And that changes everything about being afraid to lose a job or health crisis or whatever. All of a sudden, everything becomes clear. I do not need to be afraid.
Let's keep reading. Verse 23. We start to get a list now of a bunch of other people like Moses. So Moses, his parents hid him for three months by faith. They trusted the Lord. Moses, again, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He saw himself with his people, the, the Jewish people. Left Egypt, kept the Passover, went through the Red Sea. In connection with faith, the walls of Jericho fell and the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies, was not killed with others who were disobedient. And you're getting all these stories. It's like, wow, this is like a all the famous people from the Old Testament. And it's almost like the writer to the Hebrews hits a spot where he's thinking, okay, now if I tell every one of these stories, this is going to go on forever. And I'm not saying that's what was going through his mind, but it ends up being that he finally says, okay, I'm not going to tell the stories. I'm just going to list the names of these people of faith of the past, like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then he gets general, the prophets. There's so many prophets. And then he just starts to give descriptions, not even names anymore, but people who by faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and shut the mouths of the lions and quenched the fury of the flames and were powerful in battle and had dead people raised back to life and who were tortured for their faith and who were made fun of and put into prison and stoned and sawed in two and they were persecuted and mistreated. The, the world was not worthy of them, he says. They just wandered, abandoned. And if you've ever felt that you are alone, threatened for a confession of your faith, afraid to speak up at your place of work because you know what everyone else is thinking, and I'm not saying kicking down doors, and I'm not saying being rude and obnoxious, but like you know those moments where just where a word about Jesus would have been the perfect word, where you feel oppressed. That's what so many of God's people felt like. And yet, how do we feel about those people? Those heroes, right? That's how we feel about them. We feel that it's amazing. Like Abraham did trust the Lord when he didn't have a baby yet. He did trust the Lord when he climbed up that mountain. Moses did trust the Lord. and God's power saved Abraham's son. He lived and... God's power split the Red Sea, and God's power did amazing things. It was always the right call to trust our powerful and loving God who always keeps his promises, right? This is those friends that surround you. You have got so many believing friends in Hebrews 11 to say to you, be encouraged. I know you're tempted to turn your back on the Lord Jesus. Don't do it. It's a lie. Trust the Lord. In fact, in verse 39 of chapter 11, he says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Like they all died before the kingdom of God finally came in its fullest form through heaven. They died first. They didn't see with their eyes in the ultimate way. So why? Like, why did God not bring the kingdom when Abraham was alive? God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect or would they be brought to their goal. The reason God allowed them to go through life and suffer and live by faith and not by sight, not seeing heaven yet, 
was because he was thinking of you. There needed to be more people born. There needed to be more people brought to faith in the Lord. There needed to be more time that passed. He asked them to trust him, to not yet see the final fulfillment, because he had people like you and me and the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews in mind. He wanted them to experience all of this too. Like when you think about, oh, like I just wish heaven would come right now. Surely the perspective that God had back then can be helpful for us today that we can know that if it hasn't come just yet, that there's a bigger plan that God has in mind. He's keeping things going for good reasons, that he's bringing all of those he has chosen into his family. He's, he's bringing more people to faith. Are you suffering as a consequence of this extended time of grace? It is hard to be a Christian. It is hard to stand up for what is right. But when you see all of these believing friends from centuries, yes, millennia before, well, like how does that change the way we think of things? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Like, what does he do now? He talks about Jesus. Well, if you were to compare the experience of Jesus with those believers highlighted in chapter 11 of Hebrews, how would you compare the experience? And yes, he was the son of God, and they were not. Yes, he... He never sinned, and, and they did. But Jesus suffered. He was persecuted. He was treated like he was on the outside, just like so many believers who had come before him were. And what did Jesus do? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was at the end. He saw the happy light at the end of the tunnel. He knew that by going through with it, he was paying the eternal price for your sins. Do you know that you could not be in heaven without Jesus? He died for you. Jesus was suffering in the process. Could he have thought, this is a reason to give up. It's a reason not to listen to my father. It is a reason not to trust in things unseen. Oh, yes, he was tempted in every way just as we were. But Jesus said, no. He trusted. He knew that God would keep his promises, that by suffering even death itself, yes, death on a cross, by experiencing the pains of hell itself, yes, hell itself, Jesus brings victory to you and to me. What an encouragement. When you're tempted to give up what you know is right, because it is so hard to live in this earthly sinful world. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He did this already. He won forgiveness for you because of it. Follow in his footsteps. And if that's not enough encouragement, we get even a little bit more. Starting in chapter 12, verse 4, the writer to the Hebrews says to his audience, 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Like, I think basically, when you think about what, like, these heroes of faith faced for their faith, right? Like death, like being thrown to the lions or being thrown in a fiery furnace. And you think of what can keep your mouth shut when you know it really should be open when you're having a conversation and Jesus belongs in that conversation. You know, what are we afraid of? Death, fiery furnace. We're afraid of losing our reputation, having someone make fun. Like, we, we give up on Jesus for a lot less. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying to his friends, like, you guys haven't bled yet. <laughs> like, it hasn't gotten that bad. Oh, oh, please, like, be encouraged. Be encouraged to stand up for the truth. And then he says something interesting. He says, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. The Lord's discipline. Well, we are told, endure hardship as discipline. Now, this isn't to say that if you've committed a certain sin, then God's going to come and punish you, and he's going to try to hurt you. And with difficulty that comes in our life, so regularly we do not know all that God has in mind behind the scenes. We can experience difficulty because of the sin of other people even. But what the Lord tells us is that we can generally think of suffering in these terms, endure hardship as discipline. That when you do experience something bad, you yes, know that God is powerful to work even good out of what someone did evil towards you. But you can also reflect on your life and ask, so like, where is the place where I can grow spiritually? Where am I weak? What sins can I confess to the Lord that I can think of hardship as a chance to reflect on how small I am? That the Lord disciplines those he loves. And you know that as parents, we pray for the ability to lovingly discipline our children. You may have had experiences in your upbringing where you'd say, like, we all realize our parents are not perfect. But you know, maybe there's a moment where, you, or more than that, where you're thinking, I don't think that my parents honored God in the way that they did this. As the Lord speaks about parents seeking to discipline in a way that does honor the Lord, he explains that you know, dads do what they do based on what they think best. And sometimes they can be wrong, right? But your father always disciplines for your best. It's always for good. That whatever difficulty you're facing, you know that you have a father in heaven who's managing everything to ensure that you are blessed in the midst of this great challenge. This is the reason. You don't need to back away from Jesus when people are saying, if you go this other direction, it won't be as hard. You don't have to be persecuted. Okay, okay, I'll surrender. I won't confess Jesus. Or when you're at your place of work or with your family and every pressure is to keep your mouth shut and you say, okay, dear Lord, help me say it well. And then you speak. And you know that Suffering, ridicule, rebuke may come. But you're not looking at life through the lens of sight. Everything that you see is temporary. All of their opinions will pass away. You are looking at life by faith. Confident in what you cannot see. Unable to wait for the eternal city that God is planning for you. You are ready to be brave and not discouraged in the face of suffering, just like your Savior, who through suffering won 
your salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are weak. We would quickly give up in the face of suffering. Mercifully make us strong. Use these words to give us the confidence that whatever we face, we can look at all through the eyes of faith. Help us anticipate our eternal home for all of the moments as we wait for our eternal home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.